0: Hello, my name is Kevin Shields and welcome to the Crack Trail podcast, episode 12. And the first episode where I'm going to do a spotlight episode. That sounds weird, but I have done a few kind of different episodes so far. I've obviously done regular ones where I just talk about movies and review them, but I've also done some lists. And I had mentioned before I wanted to do a spotlight kind of series on this, for lack of a better word. Because I think spotlight is used probably very commonly in terms of... Uh, Selecting a film or series to just do dedicated episode, but that's what I'm gonna call it. Um, I've decided because I ended up watching all five Death Wish movies with Charles Bronson over 24 hours. uh, I was gonna just do them as part of my reviews there the other day because I'd watched a lot of kind of older films and general films that weren't released this year. But then I decided I actually could use this as a good opportunity to do a dedicated spotlight episode on the whole series. So. I thought, why the fuck not? I'm going to cover all five Charles Bronson movies. I'm also going to talk briefly about the Bruce Willis one. Only briefly because I haven't rewatched it. And I'm not in really the arse re it. And, I mean, I remember it reasonably well enough that I can still talk about it. Uh, and I was just kind of looking up here some of the other remakes that I didn't realise existed. There was one from 1975 called Shellat. Or The Executioner. Which actually came out the same year, or no, a year after Death Wish. But it's a Turkish remake. And I looked at the trailer, and it looks so fucking scuzzy and shite. Although there is a remastered version on YouTube as well, which is fairly good, fairly good quality, and a decent remaster of it. But it still looks like a shit. But I kind of love that about old trailers, mainly from the seventies and sixties and stuff like that, where they would actually just take the footage of the movie and reassemble it to to make a trailer, rather than it be like if you look at a movie that comes out now, especially like an Avengers film or something, they have all the raw footage that they convert into their own trailer. And they add their own music and it's their own thing. This is like someone found the movie on YouTube and just chopped it up in a different way. So you see, you hear music stings and stuff come in and end real abruptly. And there's just a really shitty voice talking over it. You see with a lot of 70s movies, they look like they're put together very poorly. (laughs) And that's what this looked like. It looked like shite. So I haven't seen that, obviously. And there's another one here from 76 called Sex Wish. And it's a porn version of Death Wish. And it seems to follow the same plot. His fucking his wife is raped, and he goes on a revenge spree. But I'm wondering, what's the revenge? Does he rape them back, or what the fuck does he do? Like I, don't know how it turns into a porn film, unless they just have an explicit rape scene just to make it all the more horrendous. And it wouldn't surprise me if Michael Winner was involved in that. Um, but yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna get into all five movies. Plus the remake and I'm going to spoil them obviously so if you haven't seen these movies I wouldn't recommend listening on. Although I will give my brief review right now of all of them just so you know what to expect before seeing them. So the first film I think is really good. I think it's definitely flawed. It's of its time. I saw it before and I didn't think much of it but on a rewatch it held up. Second film quite entertaining. Really fucking sleazy. I mean really sleazy. Not as good as the first third one everyone seems to love this one and i probably would have enjoyed it more if i saw it on the piss in the cinema but as a stands, i thought it wasn't great fourth one is a really big surprise i thought that was very enjoyable it's probably a bit better than two but not as good as uh, the first one and the fifth one is as bad as good as the, as the third one although it's might be a bit better actually uh and i'll get to that and the bruce willis one is not as shit as i thought it would be I think I went in with such low expectations that I ended up thinking, actually this isn't terrible. So that's my very fucking brief review of all the movies there. I imagine Sex Wish is a pile of shit and The Executioner looks like a pile of shit too. So. And I'm going to review Michael Winter briefly and give him a rating of cunt out of cunt, so fuck him. And you'll, you'll understand why later on if you continue to listen. But I'm going to get in deep with these now and I'm going to start with Death Wish from 1974. So, as I mentioned, Michael Winner decided to take on a fairly dark, grim subject and make what is considered to be probably maybe the most iconic Vigilante movies ever made. It's the one that people kind of go back to and it's been remade more or less several times. There was actually a sort of female remake that came out 13 years ago, I'm going to guess. I feel like it was 2007. It was called The Brave One with Jodie Foster and rather than it being a, a rape-revenge story, it was, I think, her boyfriend is beaten to death in front of her in an alley by a group of guys in New York, and she decides to want a revenge spree, and it's really similar, as far as I remember, in, ha- in how she goes about the revenge, and how she I think she just takes out regular kind of criminals at the same time, but it really started a trend, and as far as I know, I think there was copycat revenge-type people that went around after this movie, too. Uh, it's actually based on a novel by a name. A guy named Brian Garfield Um, but Michael Winner is he's a stranger I'm going to briefly just touch on him just so I don't have to fucking keep talking about him Uh, notoriously hard to work with an asshole meant to be the most unpleasant sleazy fucking person out there he was also mentioned after the whole Harvey Weinstein thing came up although he's been dead a while now and not Harvey Weinstein uh, fucking Michael Winner but what happened was on several of his movies, that's clear what he's doing when I mean, you look at his movies, especially, like, pretty much everything he's done since Death Wish has, has some sort of rape scene involved in it and it, they get progressively more and more graphic and sleazy. Like, there was some film he did, which again, it's, it's more or less another female Death Wish type. Um, if I remember the name of it now. Dirty Weekend. That's what it's called. <laughs> um, no, I i recall, I see, I mixed it up, there was a movie that came out around the same time called Whore. And I used to mix the two of them up for some reason because I think they have some similar ideas in them. But this one is just a typical revenge movie. She's It's a woman this time. And I remember there was loads of controversy so over a lot of the violence but over a lot of the sex too. And it seems that he doesn't approach rape scenes very well. He kind It's like he goes about them to make them tantalising. Which, I mean, like, there's always just been this argument about how rape should never be a plot device and whatever else. And I I think that's nonsense. I think rape can be a plot device. I think it's something that actually happens. It's fucking horrendous. And if it's part of a movie, that's fine. Because if murder can be a plot device, so can that. But I always find it strange when a movie, if they're going to have, or if you're not going to show the rape scene, that's fine. If you are going to show it, I mean, you want it to be horrendous, I suppose. You don't want it to look tantalising. You don't want it to look nice. You want people to see it and go, fucking hell, that is horrendous. And really let people know how fucking horrendous it is. But it can also help drive the revenge too. Although, speaking of the word revenge, there was a a French rape revenge maybe that came out a few years ago called Revenge. And the whole kind of point of it was, because a lot of these movies, when they have the rape scenes, it usually is, as I said, done in a, tantalising is probably the only way to describe it way so you'd have an attractive actress and she'd be naked in the scene and she would look attractive while these things are happening to her and it would always not sit well with people so this movie revenge it was a female director and she said well i'm going to do this in such a way where you're not going to see anything like that you're going to know this has happened you're going to know that this character's revenge is legitimate and justified and whatever else but we're not going to bother lingering on all this shit and that still works as well and that's fine um but for some reason, now, I will say, for the first Death Wish movie, what happens in it, because like, well, the basic plot of it is, is Charles Bronson plays a character named Paul Kersey and he's an architect, and by the way, Charles Bronson was about 50, 51 or 52 when he made this, around the same time as he was shooting Hard Times, and he is a unit, He is fucking jacked in this movie, and I think this is before steroids are a big thing too, so it's totally legit. Um... And his wife is played by Hope Lang. And he has a daughter as well played by Kathleen Tolan. Who I think is the only one she was in because I don't think she she reprised her role. But he's just an architect and he's just back from a holiday with his wife back in New York in the shitty streets. And his wife and daughter are in a supermarket when some grimy hoodlums are around there. One of which is played by Jeff Goldblum. Although he's credited as freak number one. Now, I I actually did a list a few years ago. I'm actually I'm branching off into several subjects here. I always fucking do this. I did a list a good few years ago for a website called Movie Pilot, which isn't around anymore. And I did, I think it was 20 I did, but I did 20 actors, or beloved actors, but not how you remember them. So I had the likes of Jeff Goldblum in there. I had the likes of Michael Gambon. Cause people, I, I picked movies that people would know them for, that they liked them in. Jeff I think I did Jurassic Park and Michael Gambon I mentioned Dumbledore but then I talked about the cook the thief, his wife and her lover where he's a scumbag in that movie and I talked about Jeff Goldblum in this and even the likes of Antonio Banderas I mentioned like Zorro and uh, Puss in Boots and things people would recognise him as be like suave and charming but he was like a grimy rapist in movies back in the 80s with Pedro Almodovar so I wanted to do this kind of thing that shows the black and white of these characters of the, the good and evil characters that they've played and I mentioned Jeff Goldblum because he plays. <laughs> I think it's the Davey Raw. He's just one of the most vile, foul-mouthed, horrible rapists ever. At him and three of his mates, they they see these two girls in the in the supermarket, and they decide to follow them home, and bust in, and they end up beating the mother de- to death and raping the daughter. And just hearing Jeff Bo- Goldblum saying he's gonna fuck this kid's mouth and fucking beating the mother's face in who's in like her late 40s with a billy club Connor or a cunt it's like this is the shit you would never in a billion years imagine seeing Jeff Goldblum do especially when you know him as just how gentle and nice he is nowadays to see him back in the day as probably one of the most vile characters ever put to screen is jaw dropping it's baffling as to fucking say but the basic idea is that they are or his wife is killed and, oh no, what, actually, sorry, I'm briefly going on topic here. So what I was talking about was the approach to the rapes. Now this is very heavily implied and while graphic, it's not. it doesn't linger. You know what's happening, it's horrendous and that's all you need to see. Whereas with each progressing film, with Death Wish 2, the rape is horrendous and I'll get there. Death Wish 3, it's more implied, but again, that was one of the movies where I think the actress who gets raped and that was like forced to come to his hotel room and had to Show him her tits and be like, "Oh yeah, this is me auditioning you for the role." Like he just did some fucking sleazy shit, and that movie, Dirty Weekend, as well. He does it from a point of view where it doesn't look like he's going, "Okay, this is a horrendous thing that happens, and this is going to drive the revenge in these characters." It looks like he's going, "Okay, I have these actresses for however many days of shooting. I'm going to get whatever nudity I can out of them," and he's essentially shooting like a softcore porn film with the second film, and. He, it's like he revels in that and then I mean after all that after he was caught out and all this shit because he was known to be such a sleazy bastard he became a food critic then and apparently he was an insufferable fucking arsehole that way too so there's just other than a couple of decent films there's really nothing good to say about Michael Winner um, and that's basically that but I'll get back into the actual plots of these movies now so obviously the mother has died and Charles Bronson finds out And he goes to see his daughter in the hospital and her husband is there and the two of them are kind of distraught and shocked over this and she's pretty much catatonic over the whole thing. She just is completely shut down. And what's interesting is Charles Bronson's character is a conscious objector. I think that's the word. or conscientious objector. I can't remember the the word that's used but he was in the war anyway, the Korean War and he wanted to be a medic. He didn't want to have any involvement in fighting. He's not into violence although he did grow up on a farm. He knew how to shoot And he decides to go down. I think he goes down south somewhere. To take his mind off what's happened. And just to get back into the work. And distract himself. And while he's down there he befriends a guy. Who just gets him into shooting. And as a parting gift for when he goes back to New York. He gets him a serious gun. Uh, I think it's actually a basic revolver. Although I think throughout the films. His weapons have gotten larger. But actually I think they have. I think every film he has a new large. Fucking ultra damaging weapon. Um, but with this, he decides to go back to New York, and he feels like he can't relax. He doesn't feel safe. There's always trouble going on around him, so he decides he wants to start fighting back. And it starts off small. He gets a a sock full of uh, stacks of dimes, so he, like he can beat the shit out of people with it. And he gets involved in that. And even after the first guy he beats up, he's vomiting and he's he just feels shocked over he doesn't know how to process what he's just done and it's interesting seeing charles bronson play a character like this because charles bronson is always tough as fucking nails and even though he's jacked here and he looks cool and everything he's just playing a, a sort of timid architecture at the movie so violence to him is not something he's used to progressively over the movie he starts looking for trouble and intercepting trouble by shooting scumbags so he'll just be hanging around in train he's almost like he's waiting for trouble he's inviting it just so he can take people out i think the first guy he kills is a mugger i think he's walking through central park at night and some guys following him and he just pulls a gun and shoots him and i think he's shocked over that he doesn't know what to do about it but he realizes that he starts to like this so in his sort of sense he's a bit like a a version of dexter or something like that where not that he's has these calculated, well at least not in this movie, plans to kill people and has a ritual to it. But more that he likes sussing out scum and taking care of them. And this puts him at odds with the police and whatever else. I have to try and remember the, the cop who's looking for him now. Is it Jack Wallace? No, it's not him. Oh, Vincent Gardinia. That's how I'm imagining you can say his name. He's the cop who's put on the case and... His name is Frank Ocha. Or Ochoa. I'm terrible with fucking pronouncing names. I always just try. I think if I ever see a name. I don't understand. I almost try to pronounce it exotically. Just so it sounds like it might be right. Although it could be something based like Oka or something. It probably is Frank Oka. Now that I look at it. But. You have this cop. He's trying to find Charles Bronson. But. There's a sort of. He almost has set off a, a chain of events in the city now Where people are starting to fight back. And there's a lot of conversations in sort of because he's obviously no one knows who he is as a a vigilante but he's fairly high up in the architect world so when he'd be at parties he'd overhear people discussing what's happening and it's really interesting Uh, especially some of the dialogue because one of the criticisms of the Bruce Willis movie is from complete fucking morons that the movie is racist because in the trailer and this is all only based on the trailer too before they even saw the movie but I think two of the criminals he shoots are black or one of them is Hispanic And people said, oh, this is a racist movie. It's a bald white man walking around uh, using his fucking Second Amendment rights and shooting uh, uh, minorities in the streets of Chicago. It's like, no, that's a lot of bullshit. But there is a similar kind of line in this movie where I think of all the people he kills up until this point, I think three of them are black and two or three of them are white. And they have a conversation where, oh, why is this guy so racist? He's only going after minorities. And they go, oh, I don't think vigilantes don't see race they just see criminals like that's the whole idea of it and I was like that's, I'm kind of surprised they even had that question pop up in the 70s especially because the 70s didn't give a fuck about this kind of stuff um, but the general plot of the movie is he's moving along he's taking these people out the police are closing in and eventually he ends up in a shootout in Central Park which gets him injured and he's sent into a hospital and what's interesting is Frank Oker comes into him and pretty much says to him look I know what you've been up to. He's been hunting down the whole movie. He kind of has an idea that it might be this guy. And there's certain links to it. Like I think they. He looks in the police files. For anyone who has had family members die recently. From like criminals or from murders. And I think one of the the scenes. Actually one of the famous scenes. Which features a young Saul Rubinick. Who plays one of the criminals. Or one of the kind of muggers in it. But he waits on a train. On his own with a bag of groceries. In the hope that someone will come up and attack him. And Saul. I think he said Saul Yurick, Because I keep thinking of his fucking name. What's his name? Saul Rubinick. Him and some other criminal come up. And he shoots the two of them. But he leaves his grocery bag behind. Which means. They know where. The grocery store is in relation to his house. And they just. They make all these connections. And Frank Oka thinks. Okay. I have this guy. When he finally gets him. He says. Look. I understand what you're doing. I understand why you're doing it. And I'll tell you what. You fuck off. Out of New York. And don't come back. And I'll just say that we never found the guy. And they kind of come to this agreement. And actually there's a really young Christopher Guest. In this too playing a cop. Which I didn't realise till afterwards. Uh, so I, I don't know whether this was his first role or not. But he's actually been around a lot longer than I actually knew. But then you think about it. He's in. This is Spinal Tap too, So it's kind of you forget about that. But the basic plot of this movie is. Although I've said that several times. He's taken out. Or he's a vigilante. He's been born into this life now because of what's happened? He's sorry reborn I should say as a vigilante he's going to go against injustice and criminals and rapists and murderers and drug dealers and all that shit and he's just that's the new Charles Bronson and this actually ends on a fairly iconic scene where he's now in Chicago and he sees I think some woman gets her like groceries knocked over by some guy or like some asshole guys that remind him of Jeff Gold. actually here's another thing I should say he doesn't get his revenge which I found really fucking interesting um, In this movie he's You have Jeff Goldblum and his two mates Who commit the horrible act But they get away scot-free He never sees them again He goes for people like them He goes after muggers and drug dealers and whatever else But he never finds the actual guys who did it And I think that was a seriously fucking ballsy thing to do Back in the day You'd never actually get away with that now At least not in a, in a mainstream film People would just look at that as too bleak All producers would be like Oh no we need to have a scene where he fully gets revenge and it's it's sort of happy ending or bittersweet whatever the fuck no nothing like that the lads get away free. um but anyway he's in chicago then he sees a bunch of people like that like those kind of people they fit that description and he famously holds up his finger and pretends to fire a gun at them the way they do that in the remake is so poor but i will get to that um I actually really enjoyed this movie. When I first saw this, I watched this about when I was about 13. And obviously the way I watch movies has changed significantly. When I first saw that, I thought, "Ah, this isn't really doing it for me. I just felt like there was nothing really going on. I expected more modern style action and things like that. I didn't get into the whole character side of it. And because I was a moron the way I used to watch films. So I I don't really trust anything I reviewed when I was that young. Um, So that's that didn't do much for me and I thought, you know what, I want to give this another try, especially after watching Charles Bronson again. I was like, you know what, fuck, I'm really in the mood to just see more of him. Rewatched that Wish and I tell you what, it holds up big time. I thought it was solid, it's really well acted, it's really well made and despite the grim nature, it's not as exploitative as you'd expect and that's where it all changes in part two because part two is a fucking joke. <laughs> so part two follows Paul Kersey again, sets, it sounds how many years after it's a good few years after it was made in 82 the first one was 74 this was made in 82 but i think it's set like two or three years after it's really weird the whole timeline of these movies because i think even in one of the later movies it refers to the events of the first movie taking place two years after so it's just it's really fucking all over the place i don't think i mean nowadays it's harder to make those mistakes if you're gonna make a movie you can really thoroughly investigate the movie that you liked before and you're going to do a sequel you'll know all the ins and outs and what doesn't make sense and what does some films do that now other films you're looking at are going how did you like look at sin city 2 as much as i really enjoy sin city 2 the inconsistencies are so fucking annoying i don't know how he didn't go back and re-watch his own movie and go okay that won't line up with this so we need to change this and that they just went for it and they were like oh shit none of that makes fucking sense but this one michael winner again and this actually features a young uh, Larry F. Mister Lawrence Fishburne, and he's playing one of those over the top. Like, what's kind of interesting is if you look at the sleaze bags in the first Dead Wish movie, Jeff Goldblum, he's saying over the top, graphic, horrible shit, but they're believable lads. They just look like total scumbag New York like criminals. These lads, every one of them is like fucking. Daffy Duck or something When they see a, a, an attractive duck walk by Or something like that They're just jumping around Hollering and all this kind of shit It's so over the top But what's happening now Is you're following Paul Kersey He's living back Or no he's over in LA now And He's now living with his real life wife Jill Ireland Who plays a character named Jerry Nichols He's Or he's not living with her They're, they're seeing each other They have a kind of relationship uh, But he has a maid in his house And I think her name is Suviana Gallardo if I'm getting the name right. And then you have an actress named Robin Sherwood playing his daughter instead this time. And the daughter comes to visit him and she's still catatonic. She's a bit like, she doesn't even know how to behave anymore. The husband, and he said husband-in-law, the son-in-law or husband, who was around a bit in the first one, he's kind of just there to give a bit of exposition for Charles Bronson's character and say, look, she's, the doctor's recommended this, she's on this medicine, we don't know what to do, blah, blah. He doesn't really have much impact on where the story goes. He's not involved in the vigilantism and he's not even mentioned in this one. So that's why I think it's really strange that the the not chronology but the continuity is all over the shop. Um, but the basic idea is Charles Bronson is out with her and his new girlfriend, they're walking around the streets of LA and he gets pickpocketed by a group of lads who want to start a fight. One of them is Lawrence Fishburne, the rest of them are just the most typical eighties bad guy, fucking sleazy street punks you've ever seen like spike collars and fucking crazy haircuts and just impossibly crazy they don't even know how to actually behave around each other they're just so thirsty for death and murder and rape and killing and drugs they're hilarious caricatures and already that sets this apart from the first one because the first one despite how sleazy it is and everything else and while it is can be over the top it feels grounded in reality this one is just total exploitation So the plot of this one is... He gets robbed and he's like a fucking... I think... I think he's building a radio station or something. Because he's still an architect. But I think he's at work anyway when... Or he might be out with his wife. But his daughter is... No, no, no. Sorry. I've mixed that up entirely. While he's out with his daughter and girlfriend... Because he's been pickpocketed... They have his uh, address from his wallet. And they say, let's go, go to his house and rob the place. He looks like he's got some money. And when they get there the maid who's been hanging around, ends up being attacked and raped by these lads. Now, this is where you see the difference in just how Michael Winner has approached this. Because, like I said, the first film, it's heavily implied what's going on, and it's graphic to the point where you see people's reactions and whatever else, and you hear things. This film is like he just shot a softcore porn film. It's a gang rape with fucking five lads. They all take a go on the, the maid. Lawrence Fishburne is... Like comically over the top in this scene as well, and there's a few people, but it's just it's really just graphic, nonstop, really like explicit kind of nudity in it. And I'm just thinking, he didn't shoot this to be like, oh yeah, I'm gonna make this a, an exploitation. This looks like he did this for his own home movie collection. It's so needlessly sleazy. Now I love fucking sleazy. I don't give a shit, but it's it just is so exploitative in this movie to the point where it's almost parody. But that goes on for an uncomfortably long time. That's where most of the censorship was, because this film was actually butchered all over the world. It's only been released uncut recently enough. Um, I think Screen Factory or Show Factory might have done a special edition of it, which is uncut. Um, But yeah, what happens is Charles Bronson and his daughter arrive home while the thugs are still there. He's knocked out, his daughter's kidnapped, and she's brought back to her warehouse. While still catatonic, she's kind of savvy enough to know that something bad is happening. And one of the lads decides to rape her. And the way that's done, again, overly sensual. It's really slow. It goes on for like five minutes. It's like, is this supposed to be a love scene or a fucking horrible rape scene? But she snaps out of it and gets up and tries to escape. And she ends up falling out of the, the second story of this building and gets impaled on a fence. So already Charles Fadden has had the most unlucky few years of his fucking life. He's had his wife beaten to death. His daughter raped twice and now murdered. And his maid... Oh, by the way, she's also murdered by the lads. Like Things are just getting worse and worse for this chap. But what's interesting about this one is... Because he gets a look at the guys... Both in the park where he's pickpocketed... And in his house before he gets knocked out. He knows who he's looking for. And he decides to go a bit differently with this revenge spree. Rather than just the streets of New York... Occasionally dressing well... And hoping that he's preyed upon by people. He actually goes hunting for them in this. And he decides to rent out a small little apartment... Or I don't know if you can call it an apartment It's a little shithole Three dollars a night kind of place And he has a suit He kind of dresses in like a uh, A cap and A long trench coat And he basically goes around The street, the scuzzy streets looking for scumbags Now Michael Winner was quite smart about this Because LA is just full of Crazy looking fuckers anyway So There's mad biker gangs going around And all these sorts of things That he just Shot for real There's all real stuff going on around him But it actually just adds to the atmosphere Of this movie so well But he's gradually finding each character and taking them out. And I think that's one of the strongest points of this movie. Because it's quite dull a lot of the time. Uh, It's sleazy as fuck. But when he's actually getting revenge on these people. It is ultra bloody and ultra entertaining. And really fucking well done. Um, And just really gritty too. See the thing is. What's funny is. The whole build up of this movie has the sleaze and exploitation of a Grindhouse movie. Because it's canon. Canon pictures actually produced. From three to four I think. Or sorry from two to four. And. It keeps that exploitation style. But once it gets to the actual revenge. It's really hard and nasty. And. Obviously justified. But it has a different feel altogether. And what I found interesting is. All the. The scumbags that he's after. All got to dress themselves. So. The clothes not as Fishburne shows. I don't know where the fuck he got them. But uh. He looks. Outrageous in this. But uh. He actually has one of my favorite death scenes in it because everyone kind of gets taken out in instant ways. They're mostly just shot. But he is running away from a gunfight trying to block his head from being shot with a radio. And the radio, I think it explodes down the middle and his whole head bursts open. And you see a load of teeth come out and everything. It's just, I think those kind of horrible scenes of violence are always just so much more satisfying when they're justified. And they're totally justified here. And it's strange because there's no real lead. Gang member, they're all kind of sleazy assholes, they all have their little quirks. But he ends up finding one guy that he has to go against. Oh, by the way, I should say that uh, Frank Oka decides to come back. He hears about vigilantism going on in LA. He thinks, Look, I know he might be doing it, it's this architect, let me go find him. And when he gets over there, he ends up getting killed by the gang <laughs> because I think it's just as Frank's tracking them down, or sorry, just as Paul is tracking them down, Frank shows up, wrecks everything, gets killed. The typical Go get those guys before I die. Kind of speech. But it ends up with. Paul Kirsty decides. Okay I'm going to. Disguise myself as a prison doctor. And get in and talk to one of the lads. Who's been caught. Because one of these guys. From the gang has been taken into prison. And he's almost treated as the leader. Which is weird. Because he, I mean, he shows kind of. Leadership skills is probably not the word. But he shows like he's in charge. When they're at his house. But there's no real indication. That he's the one leading this gang. And he ends up. Getting into a really brutal fist fight with Paul Kersey in the, in some like therapy room in the hospital or prison hospital, and the, the stunts for that scene are fucking great. You can tell it's not Charles Bronson in one scene, but it's really fucking gritty and nasty, and it's it's a really bizarre mix. Like I said, there's there's exploitation elements, but it still keeps a lot of the grit from the first movie. Is it as good narratively? No, it's way more exp- exploitative. It's not. It's a bit more fun, I guess, if that's the word to describe it, because, I mean, when he's going on the revenge spree, getting to see such shitty L.A., it's entertaining, because it's 80s L.A. Uh, 70s New York is a real dour, depressing, miserable look, but 80s L.A. is really over-the-top and fun, despite the grim shit that's going on in it. But it's, compared to the first one, not as good, but it's a solid exploitation movie, if that's what you're looking for definitely more so than what's coming next with 1985's death wish tree now strange story well not strange story behind this one but grindhouse dublin which is one of the most enjoyable nights you can actually have in town it's an event that shows in the lighthouse and a lot of people who run it they're all good people and there's some fucking fantastic stuff that's been shown there and some really rare stuff too and i'm fairly certain that they had a double bill a canon double bill. Of this and Masters of the Universe. Both in 35mm. Which is just. Serious. And. I remember. Half thinking about going. I wasn't too interested in seeing Masters of the Universe. I said. Oh, I must, must go to Red Dead Tree. It could be a crack. And I ended up never going. And I regret that. Because. I think I would have had. A much more enjoyable experience with it. Because I ended up just watching this. Early in the morning. On Netflix. On my own. And. It really seems like the kind of movie that would be a lot of fun. I mean, loads of fun if you were on the piss in the cinema, especially at grindhouse. I think that would have been a fucking tremendous night, and I can see why this has its fans. It puts a lot of the rape and stuff on the back burner. There is a rape scene in it. Like I said, it's, it's more so implied, but it is one of the ones where Michael Winner was apparently at his sleaziest, and that's what got his name called out with Harvey Weinstein and all those. Um... But this this is actually the last one he directed I think. Pretty sure it's the last one he did. Because I think Charles Bronson was sick of the cunt. But this one. That takes a back seat. While you still have the crazy same kind of characters. From Death Wish 2. This just. Like. It's so over the top. You have. First of all. What's interesting is the villain in this movie. Is played by Gavin O'Hurley. Who I didn't realise was the son of Dan O'Hurley. Who is in the likes of Halloween 3 and Robocop. And is a Dublin man. Same with Gavin hurley But he, he just, he kind of looks like Keith Carradine or something like that. But he's a total sleazeball fucking leader of this gang. And Alex, a very young Alex Winter is in this too. Alex Winter you might know from The Lost Boys and more importantly is Bill from Bill and Ted. Which the new movie, just occurred to me, could get postponed with all this coronavirus shit. I really hope that's not the case. I don't know, it could be. There's also interesting stuff regarding movie releases and the coronavirus, but I'll, I'll actually get on to that on a later episode, and later in the week, because I have another episode planned, a regular episode, and I'd rather save any kind of movie news for that. But this movie follows Charles Bronson. He's back in New York, even though it's actually parts of England shot to look like New York, which I didn't know at the time. There's some There's some cutaway stuff, obviously, of real New York, but I actually didn't guess it was New York, not really New York, but it didn't feel like New York at the same time it didn't quite look like it but I never would have guessed it was England Um, it was Charles Bronson he's arrived back to meet a friend from the Korean War and when he goes to his apartment block he finds him dead and ends up being arrested for it they think he's done the murder the police chief played by Ed Lauder has said right I know you didn't do the killing I know who you are I'm not stupid I'll tell you what I'll give you a free pass if you use your vigilante skills so to speak to take out this entire gang. And obviously Charles Bonson says. Yeah these are the cunts did it. But it's it's not just a simple. Him going around the streets looking for crimes thing. Although there is a lot of that in it. It's more him getting the community. In this terror block. Who are just terrorised by this group of fucking scumbags. To band together. And fight against the punks. And. It's, it's a strange one because. all right, The structure of this movie is so arseways. This is why it would be really fun. As a grindhouse piss-up movie, because you'll have several repetitive scenes over and over of old woman walking around a handbag, punk who you've seen earlier on in the movie, snatching a bag and running away, and Charles Bronson happens to be coming around the corner with one of his mates and just pulls a gun and shoots him. And that happens so many fucking times in this movie. Um It's a strange one too, because it's alright, the body count for each movie. The first movie I think ten people are killed in it. And uh, that might even include his his wife. Like it's it's not gratuitous at all. Any of the violence in it. The second film is a lot bloodier and more gratuitous, but it's still only maybe ten people killed. In it. This movie has a body count of I think ninety one people. I think two of them. One of them is his friend. One of them is the girl who's raped. She ends up dying, and that's when her husband decides he wants to join in the revenge spree. And I think maybe three or four innocent people are killed because of this gang. Everyone else who dies is a gang member. Yes, this movie isn't really all that violent. And you you think it would be. There's a lot of fun stuff in it. It's kind of like there's a sort of home alone aspect too. He sets up so many traps in this movie, like wooden boards that when you stand on them, there's a, a knife sticking out of it that'll stick into your face. And he has all these things set up all around the perimeter of the house. And I think he buys. What's he do? He. He buys a nice car. And I think he. Was he hide a bomb in it? And he hopes that someone will rob the car. So he can blow it up. There's something like that. It's hard to remember. Because it's surprisingly a forgettable film. But there's really. No. Actually I should mention the voice. Okay. Charles Bronson. People always take the piss out of his voice. Like hey. Charles Bronson. Whatever. (laughs) I don't even know how to do the impression right now. But. They always just go for this low. Quick. He kind of. The Simpsons have taken the piss out of him a lot. And. The second movie. He kind of sounds like he's forgot the voice he put on in the first movie and he sounds almost irish this movie it sounds like he's been entirely dubbed in it sounds like he's not even there and they just dubbed for him he just didn't bother his arse with this movie at all now don't get me wrong the movie has its fun elements the, like, the general plot of it is gavin o'hurley he's the leader His name is fraker he runs this gang there's several other characters that are going around one of called the giggler who apparently is based on a real criminal who like he's just Really really fast. And he'd run around robbing purses. And giggling his arse off. He ends up getting shot. In just the most. Undramatic fucking way ever. But the movie. Progresses on to have this whole. Terror block. Fighting against this gang. Machine guns are being used. All these old war weapons. Grenades. All the shit that he ha- His friend had from the Korean War. And. It kind of just feels like it goes nowhere. It just. It's just a series of. Fairly poor shootouts. That don't have they they evoke the same kind of level of fun as maybe the second one has in in the types of characters that are in it. none of the grid is there i don't know i just felt totally underwhelmed by this it just did nothing for me and again i was on my own watching it it probably would be a lot more effective with cans in the cinema but i don't know i just mainly sat there going i don't really care what's happening it's not violent enough to keep me interested i don't really give a shit about these characters they don't do a very good job at setting anyone up the gang leader is just over the top he does have a great finale though a great death where he's shot with a rocket and blows out the side of this building (laughs) even then it just kind of it would have more an effect in the cinema I think overall doesn't do much for me it's just him back in New York killing a fuck lot of people and then he fucks off again to LA by the end of this movie I think he's he packs his bags he's only meant to be visiting New York just to see this guy because he's technically been given a uh, a message from Ocha to say Look don't come back Or whatever his name is I'm going to keep pronouncing his name wrong But he fucks off back to, to LA Then at the end of this movie And that's where it sets off the fourth movie So this one was 85 Death Wish 3 was the last of the Michael Winner ones And I I actually think it might be my least favourite Well here's the thing I like all the movies From Death Wish 1 to 5 I think 3 and 5 are definitely the weakest Uh. Five... It's not as fun, for sure. But the action is a lot better. And I'll get to that. So, Because I think a lot of the action in this is kind of... There's a lot of explosions going off... Five feet away from people. And them just doing a big ballerina twirl away from it. That kind of action, which I find... Gets a bit tedious after a while. Um, I don't know. It's just the third one just did not really do much for me. It's, it's boring. It does put behind the rape. This is the start of the rape going away. Because by the fourth one... You're just into general bad guys. So if you look at at the types of criminals you have. Which are effectively teenagers. Although movie teenagers back then were 25 year olds playing 15 year olds. But you have Jeff Goldblum and his lads. Who are scumbags. You have. Lars Fishburne and his mates. Who are also scumbags. But they're more over the top. And a bit more ruthless in what they do. And in this film you have crazy scumbags. But they're not as ruthless in terms of rape and stuff. And torture and things like that. But they are crazy killers. From the fourth one is when the movie picks back up in terms of realism. Now, there is an interesting mix here. So this is Death Wish 4 The Crackdown, is what it's called. And this came out in 87. And Charles Bronson, at this stage, is in his 60s. Like I think, Actually, I think he was in his 60s from Death Wish 2. He would have been, because that was shot nearly 10 years after. Yeah, he was about sixteen in Death Wish 2. <laughs> and now he's obviously mid-60s now. But this one... It's a bit more interesting. It's set in L.A., but it ha- it really reminds me of The Lost Boys in terms of location. It has that same sort of... I think it's Venice Beach that they're in, or near enough to... Uh, but there's like a kind of a fairground sort of arcade area in this. Now, he has a new girlfriend in this movie, and her daughter, who I feel like is played by someone I recognise, although I don't remember now. Yeah, she's played by... The character. Or the actress. Dana Barron. From. Vacation. Who plays Audrey in Vacation. So. Bit of a more. Gritty turn for her. After doing a vacation. But. He has his new. Girlfriend. Played by Kay Lenz. And. They're just happy. He's just gone about life again. Even though. I mean. He's had the most tragic circumstances. Several times in his life. He's killed over a hundred fucking people. And. It kind of just means nothing to him. But he's just living. A relaxed life now. Although I think. Oh he uses a fake name actually. Is that in the second one? I think. I can't remember what he calls himself now. He's, he's Paul Kersey, only. But it's like. No I don't remember. I, mean, I know he has a fake name. I think in the third movie. Or one of them. And. Uh, anyway he decides. In this movie he's living a normal life. And his new daughter-in-law. Or his. I suppose girlfriend's daughter. She meets a new guy. And she goes to the beach to hang out. And whatever else. And they're in the arcade when they. Buy some drugs because you know, cool hip eighties teenagers do rocks of fucking cocaine, and it's a bit more straightforward than that says. There's no, there's not a lot of sleaze in this one, um, but lots of drug dealing. And what happens is she ends up taking a cocaine overdose, and that sends him on a revenge mission, and he goes down to the beach looking for people there. He finds a drug dealer and kills him, and that ends up he ends up catching the eye then of this really rich businessman played by john p ryan named nathan white and he or or ed zacharias i think his name is if i'm getting that right maybe i'm not i don't remember his fucking name because i know he has a i mean i'm gonna i'm gonna be spoiling this anyway but might be ed zacharias it could be him but he You'd know John P. White. He always... I've never seen him play a character that isn't some sort of villain in some way. He just has the most evil corporation head on him. Um, But what happens is he ends up going to his house and says, look, my daughter died from a drug overdose similar to your daughter-in-law did. All these drug dealers have been causing shit, whatever, for years. And I know there's two factions that are going against each other. I want you... To kill all these people. And create a war. Between these factions. And get rid of them. So we don't have to deal with them anymore. And he kind of. Tugs at. Paul Kirsty's heartstrings. By saying. Look. We both have had people. Die from this. And that sends him on a mission. Then he knows all the details. He goes after these two groups. And is. Gradually taking certain members out. And Danny Trejo. Actually a young Danny Trejo. Plays one of the. Henchmen in it. Who gets blown up. In a hilarious. Fucking dummy death dummy deaths are pretty prevalent in these movies as well but the one in this is just hilarious he i think he rigs a bottle of wine like he has an ex- explosive at the bottom of it and he's going bar to bar pretending that he's selling it but he's actually going in to leave it at their table and blow them up and it just cuts to what looks like three paper mache lads sitting there on a the table and they blow up the it's just i thought it was tremendous but he has two cops who are looking for him one played by george dickerson detective rayner and he has uh, this is a korean name i'm gonna get wrong uh Soon tech played by oh no that's the actor and he plays a character named detective phil nozaki which i think so i think he's playing like a japanese name and they're probably just i mean this is the 80s they were just like oh you're asian you're going to be japanese for this scene even though you're probably not japanese but he has these two cops after him or at least looking for him same typical thing where the cops are kind of on his side really um and it's quite interesting how they do that. But it's what I, what I liked about this movie was that it abandoned the sleaze. I mean they're still trashy elements. You still have the shitty gangs who are hanging around the uh, boardwalks. But this is more cartel and mafia kind of stuff. But more so cartel. And him's creating a war between these two drug factions. And some of the kills are quite creative in this one as well. But. It gets to a point where... Now, this is the thing. With John P. Ryan, as soon as I saw him, I was like, he's the villain. And even... I actually think I mentioned this in my review on Letterboxd. I don't even consider that a spoiler. You look at him and you go, there is no... (laughs) There is no way in hell this guy is legitimate. This guy is such a fucking villain. And I was right. The whole thing is that he pretended to be this Ed Zacharias, if I'm getting the name right. I really don't fucking remember. Um... I actually could be totally wrong now that I think of it. I think Ed yeah, Zacharias is the drug dealer. Because, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna re-explain this part. So John P. Ryan is posing, and his character's name here on IMDb is Nathan White. So I'm just going to say Nathan White as his character. But he's posing as this guy named Nathan White, who is this rich entrepreneurial business guy. But it turns out he was out of town, and he got to pl- pretend to be him to get Paul Kersey to go off and commit all these murders but really he was taken at the competition because Nathan White is actually a drug baron himself and they set it up for Paul Kersey to be killed but it doesn't work so he goes on a revenge mission after him and there's some fucking really really great scenes in this movie there's a brilliant fight scene in a hotel where he's fighting one of the henchmen in one of the gangs and it's just really gritty and nasty really kind of it feels like it could have been in the 70s as well even though it's the 80s it has a good look to it uh, and it, it involves another great dummy death Which uh, looks really painful <laughs> Because they did a good job at the dummy it just, His arms are flopping all over the place it just You're just aware it's not real But give me a fucking dummy death over CGI any fucking day But This movie he figures out that Nathan White is actually a, a drug baron And that he planned to have him killed Nathan White ends up kidnapping his wife And killing him No sorry I said that wrong He ends up kidnapping his wife and killing her or his his girlfriend. I'm mixing up the. He's had some I mean, Charles Bronson fucking slays in these movies. He has a new fucking wife or girlfriend in every single fucking movie. Um, but with this one he she ends up being killed, and that sends him on the war And similar to Death Wish Tree, he blows up the villain with a rocket launcher, <laughs> and it's just absolutely fucking hilarious. Well, here's the thing about this movie, the third film. Had a sense of fun about it. Even though it's quite tedious at times. It just has a sense of. Let's just have loads of bad guys get killed. and It's a good romp. This movie. It takes the somewhat seriousness. Of the first movie. It removes the sleaze. And the rape. And replaces it with just drug dealers. Because drug dealers was just a big thing in the 80s. It's like oh, drug dealers doing this. Kill them. And it still managed to keep. A sense of fun. That the third film had. And I think it was actually. Nearly the perfect balance. The problem with the movie is. Is that the plot is actually kind of shite. And it's tired. And it's been done before. And there are slow moments. But it actually might be my second favourite. Of the bunch. Like it it just edges out the second film. The second film is a lot more violent. And brutal and whatnot. But this one has the perfect blend of fun. And serious. It's just lacking. In terms of narrative. And you know exactly where it's going to go. The second you fucking see John P. Ryan. You're like. He's a villain what he's saying now is a lie i guarantee it and then 40 minutes later you find out he's lying so it's it's exactly that way but i mean if you look at the film so far the general arc has been we're gonna let you away with this because we know your family's been killed and you've been killing bad guys but you have to fuck off out of the country the second film is more or less the same only in a more extreme level i think uh, actually after he kills that that guy in the fight dresses a doctor. I think the security guard says, "Look, I'm going to give you a five minute head start. Get the fuck out of here." Third film is kind of just like just kill all the vigilantes and you. Basically, all these movies are very pro vigilante, which I suppose I can understand because there's never there's never an unjustified death in these movies, except to the innocent people. When it comes to getting the revenge or any of the people that traz Bronson kills. They're all completely justified. So you're kind of you're kind of always on his side, even though he is a mass murderer at this stage, Ge- reaching genocidal levels for one person. Um, but with this movie, it just kind of it ends very abruptly too. Once he blows up John P. Ryan, he's just like, all right, he fucks off, leaves his wife there, and it's kind of he lost everyone again. He lost his his new surrogate daughter. He lost his new potential wife or girlfriend. I can't remember what the fuck she is in this. And there he is again. He's just lost everything and he fucked off. And this time he fucks off to New York again. And I think they shot this in Canada, if I remember correctly. Because the stuff in L.A. is all legit L.A. And they're good L.A. movies as well. They are a real good sense of L.A. at the time. Obviously the first one was shot in legitimate New York. Third in London or somewhere. And this one I'm pretty sure is in canada or somewhere like that there's some good, like new york photography at the start to I don't know set the scene and whatever else but this one is now in 1994 so we've gone from 1974 to 1994 so that's a long fucking time following this one character now charles bronson is in his 70s at this stage i think he was 72 or 73 when he made this and it might actually be the last movie he released i'm gonna make absolute sure of that um I'm pretty sure. Well, he actually he appeared on some TV movies that would have came out later. He must have shot all that stuff in advance. But Although, by the looks of it, it's a TV movie that came out in 95 called Family of Cops. And he plays a character called Paul Fane. And the other two movies that came out in 97 and 99, he plays Paul Fane. And I guarantee that it's just recycled footage from the three movies. I am put my money on that. But his last real big release that I think it went straight to video as far as I know is Death Wish V or Death Wish 5 The Face of Death and here's a funny thing this is just this is just a ridiculous way producers go on and how people go on when they were making these movies with Death Wish 2 it's Roman numerals so it's two lines let's say to do the number 2 and similar to the way Rocky did the producers for when he was doing Death Wish 3 said oh no we need the number 3 we don't think That the average American audience will understand Roman numerals. And they won't get that this is a third Death Wish film. And that baffled me beyond belief. So Death Wish 3 is the number 3. Death Wish 4 is the number 4. With Death Wish 5 they decided to go back to the V. And here we are. Now this one, speaking of TV movies. Feels like a TV movie. Oh I never mentioned actually the director of Death Wish 4. um. I need to go back now. I have IMDb keeping me uh, on the straight and narrow here so I know what I'm talking about. But it was from the director J. Lee Thompson who directed a lot of the Planet of the Apes sequels but most notably directed The Guns of Navarone in the early 60s. So this chap knows what he's doing. He's got a seriously good catalogue behind him if you actually look through it. There's some fucking great stuff there um, that a lot of which I've been meaning to actually see throughout my whole life. He did the original Cape Fear as well. So... He's one to keep an eye on, or one that I'm going to go back and revisit all the stuff. But he also did a fuckload of movies with Charles Bronson. He did loads of the ones in the in the, in the 80s. I've seen I think two of them, maybe. He did like, like Likes of Murphy's Law, 10 to Midnight, which I've seen, which is fucking really good. Uh, pretty sure he's in Firewalk as well, and he directed Kinji, or Kinjite, The Forbidden Subjects. Again, probably pronouncing that wrong, but that's another one. All these really... Nasty, violent Charles Bronson movies from the 80s. He actually did. So that makes sense that he would get him for Death Wish 4. Because they clearly had a good rapport. And it went well with them. And uh, he was definitely a good choice. But the fifth one here is directed by Alan A. Goldstein. And from what I see, he has done fuck all. Except really gammy looking TV movies. And cheap straight to video stuff. And it's not actually all that surprising because death wish five it feels like a gritty like a really gritty nine o'clock tv movie like a movie that was made for tv but it was boundary pushing much like death wish four it abandons any kind of rape or sleaze and replaces it with instead of drug cartels it's more mobsters and it's paul kersey he's still a vigilante (laughs) um Although he's, he's probably less... Actually, was it the fourth one? The fourth one has a great opening scene where it's a woman about to be raped by three guys in a parking lot. He's actually having a nightmare. Or is it this one? Actually, uh, no, I'm pretty sure it's the fourth one. And he shows up and takes them all out. And it's a really cool scene, but even though it's, it's a dream, I just remember thinking like, oh, I thought this movie was going to go a different way. It's actually it's totally changed its approach. It's almost like that. It's abandoning that whole idea of. This is not the direction we're going anymore. But this movie he's. Yet again found himself. A wife or a girlfriend or whatever. Half his age as well. And. She works in the fashion industry. Business whatever you want to call it. And. Another one with a daughter but. She has. A daughter with a mobster. Played by Michael Parks. And. Michael Parks. Devours. Every fucking scene of this movie. He just. He doesn't take a moment to even be slightly believable. He just goes. Full on. I am. Bananas fucking crazy for this whole movie. And I enjoyed that. I think it went a, a fun way out of Because. I think 90s. Scenery chewing. Is a bit different to the 80s. If you look at the 80s ones. You see the likes of Lars all lads. Literally jumping around the place like they're insane. Whereas. Michael Parks just kind of behaves like he just should be locked up in an asylum. And it's a lot of fun to watch. The idea of this is that he doesn't like that he's abusive to his new girlfriend. And I'm trying to remember what way this all comes together. This is actually one of the, the, the least memorable as well. Because the plot of this movie just feels like it's actually going fucking nowhere. The only reason it, it involves fashionistas or fashion... Fashion shows and that kind of world Is probably because they can have a bunch of Fashion related deaths That happen in the last act of the movie Or well, when I say that that sounds really stupid But like I mean there's a There's a machine in it that you fill up with Like shredded Fucking fluff Or <laughs> whatever you'd call it Insulation to fill it, Punching bags and things like that So there's a lot of this kind of stuff going on And obviously someone gets fed into that Um, But the general idea is that Michael Parks is a sleazy monster, and he decides he doesn't like his wife the way she's ignoring him or trying to keep their daughter away from him. So he kidnaps his own daughter and kills her, and this sends Charles Bronson as Paul Cursey on a revenge spree, as usual. And this time it's a bit different; like it's a bit more MacGyvery. Now, if you look at the the last two movies, he does have the odd plan, like I said in the third film, he has floorboards with nails in it, but that feels more Home Alone sort of like a uh, homemade makeshift kind of shit this feels like he's doing stuff that you'd see in a Maguire film now one of them i think he poisons a cannoli or something like that because they're all like italian new yorker kind of fucking guys that he's taken out and one of them i think he poisons his cannoli he chokes on that i think most of the other ones just get shot in really bloody ways it's really well done one guy like i say, gets fed into a fucking a chipper but it's all stuff that's going on in the, the fashion world one guy actually gets cling filmed to death because <laughs> I think they're wrapping stuff up in the start of the film there's a lot of Chekhov's guns in this that all get fucking used at one point and I appreciated that um, but here's the thing about it, it's actually, it's not badly shot or anything. there's a great, uh, probably the most MacGyvery death scene is, there's this guy who, he has like some skin issue and he's loads of dandruff and he's very sensitive about it Bizarre character thing to write into this movie. But he ends up. He finds this football. Which I don't think they've ever even sold these in a shop. I don't know why they would. But it's a remote control football. And he just fucks around with it. And drives around. And he decides to fill it with a like, napalm explosion. And he blows up this guy. Who's got like. He's worried about his face. Destroys his face with it. Now here's actually the thing I should say. Stunt wise. Now the first movie. Is all just death dancing. People get shot. to do a ballerina twirl. There's not much in the way of stunts. Second film is a bit. A lot of the same. But there's a bit more danger to it. There's a few explosions. Third film is. Endless death dancing. Fourth film. Has a bit of grip. But again. Stunts aren't a huge part. But with this film. The strongest aspect. Like right, first of all. Big bloody squibs is always a good thing. But. There's a few stunts in this film. That are fucking dangerous. You see. I think she's a female cop. Who gets hit by a car. And she gets wallied into the fucking air it is really vicious how they did that and loads of explosions and dummies and shit just i was really just impressed with how fucking well put together a lot of this stuff was despite the fact it feels like a shoddy kind of tv movie um actually i should mention as well the actor kenneth walsh and michael parks both of which were huge parts of twin peaks so I thought that was interesting that they included those as characters in this. Well, they didn't include them in this, but it was interesting that they actually got to work together again, which I I should say. Um, And you also have Saul Rubinick, who makes a sort of return, because obviously he just plays a punk in the first movie and gets shot, but in this one he plays a... I think he's a lawyer or something. And I think a lot of this is because she might testify against Michael Parks and take their daughter away, and that's that's how all these connections come together. As usual, there's lots of double-crossing, it's very, very run of the mill, not that interesting. The real strengths of this movie are just the action and the bloodiness of it. They're very few and far between at the same time as well. So there, there's it's a weird it's a weird tone to go through. So like I said, you had the, the different tones all the way up. This one just feels like a standard T V movie that didn't actually need to be called Death Wish at all. This could have just been something else, but it probably would have been a I mean it was straight to fucking video anyway. But it probably would have been a guaranteed straight to video. Had it not been called Dead Wish. It still ended up being that. But if that was just called something else. People would just see it as. Ah it's another Charles Bronson Revenge film. Fucking just throw it out. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed them all. But I think if I had to rank them so far. Now I'm going to rank these. I won't include the, the Bruce Willis one. But obviously I think the first one is the best. It's the strongest film. It has the most realistic characters. Realistic narrative. The situation is realistic and ugly. The revenge is realistic and ugly, and it feels more well-rounded. And I think it's just it's it's actually quite a good film. And that's that's another reason I like to give movies a second chance. Because like I said, I gave up on that. Well, not that I gave up on it. That I did. I didn't like it years ago, and I never wanted to watch it again. I was like, oh that was boring and shite. I don't want to see that again. And I was wrong. So to give it another go, I was glad I did, and it, it worked for me. The second film. I think works as a an entertaining gritty action movie. I think the realism goes out the window. It's fun, but not as fun. It's raw. If you don't like like if if anything like that is tough for you to watch, don't watch it because it's fairly rough in the first twenty minutes or so. But the action is good in It's I love the LA look to it. I, I just love anything that has that sleazy fucking. Just the characters that you see shooting gorilla walking around the streets, just not. Knowing what the fuck is going to happen next. And then interjecting that. Movie. Like look at Taxi Driver. You know the shit that he caught happening in the streets. And just kept in Taxi Driver. Or even. Uh, well, obviously that's New York. And same with Basket Case. Like Basket Case they shot. Like without any permits around New York. And it's just. The craziest sleaziest characters that they got for real. Are just amazing to look at. Um, Third movie. Is, I think could be my least favourite. I mean it's arguably the most fun and least takes itself the least serious but you just need to be in the right atmosphere for it i might think differently if i got to see that on a big screen again on the piss it'd be a very different experience probably a lot more fun but in the circumstances i watched it i just thought i've seen this before it's nothing it's not that interesting uh the fourth film then is probably yeah it's probably the strongest of the the sequels i'm really impressed by that one Good performances. It goes back to the bare bones of the first one, minus the sleaze. I think it has the seriousness, the grit, and it's also quite fun. And it has a. It's a nice 80s time capsule. It doesn't feel like it's dated as badly as a lot of the other ones. Um, so yeah, definitely recommend the fourth one and the fifth one. As I said, some very good action scenes. I like the bloodiness of it, but it's fucking dreary. I. <sighs> I think it's a better action film than the third one, but the third one's more fun. So they're kind of equal. I'd I'd pretty much rate them equal in terms of what I like and dislike about them both. I think if you had the fun of the third one with the violence and the action of the fifth one, it would be a fucking cracker. It might even be the second best of the bunch. But as it stands, they're kind of equally my least favorite. The second and the fourth are somewhat equal. Though the fourth probably edges it out a bit, and then the first one's the best. So that that'd be my rating for the Death Wish Collection. So it'd be one, four, two. Uh, five and three. That's how I'm, I'm picturing it right now. Um, But of course. Like anything. Even though this is a, a a subject that anyone can go for. And they can call it whatever the fuck they want. To make any revenge movie they want. In 2018 I think it was. Yes 2018. Eli Roth of all people. Decided I am going to make a fucking Death Wish remake. Now my first instinct was oh god no and I wonder who they're going to get for it and they said Bruce Willis I thought, oh fuck because, I mean anyone who knows me knows Die Hard is my number one favourite movie I love everything about it I think it's amazing as a piece of fun action cinema and as a genuine piece of auteur cinema it's fucking amazing It, it covers everything Bruce Willis I used to love I used to love watching him in anything I was like, oh I'll watch anything he's in he's just the most exciting it's John McClane whatever he's in Pulp Fiction oh this is amazing But he's an asshole. He's notoriously an asshole to work with. He's notoriously an asshole in interviews. Have you ever seen any of the stuff he did for Red 2? He acts like it's an inconvenience for him to be talking about this. It's like, you made the fucking movie. These people, you have to sell this movie. You can't act like you're just better than the movie and you're better than the people asking you questions. He just behaves like such a dickhead in every interview I've seen. And it puts all the other actors under pressure then, because they're just sitting there like, what the fuck am I supposed to do? It's like Brie Larson. Brie Larson just made everyone uncomfortable when they were doing the Avengers Avengers interviews. And they were just like, what the fuck? He's like that. It's him and I think Mary... I don't know, what's her name? It's not Mary it is, but Winstead. The one who's in Weeds, I don't remember her name. They were in an interview together and talking about Red and he was just being such an asshole. She was sitting there like, what the fuck am I supposed to do? Like, this guy's a dickhead. Obviously, I saw Kevin Smith live about 10, 11 years ago. And he was talking about making Cop Out and just how much of a dickhead Bruce Willis was. And again, he's like me. He said, I love Die Hard. I love Pulp Fishing. This guy is an idol of mine. To get to work with him is a big deal. And he's actually just a complete dickhead. So, it's unfortunate. Um, now, I have a vague memory of this movie. Because. I mean. I watched it when it came out. I made sure to see it uncut. Because. Here I go about certs again. All those movies I mentioned before. Had had. Issues with censorship. Mostly number two. I think three had a little bit. But number two was. Butchered. And. It is now uncut. All these movies are uncut. But with this one. They released a cut in the cinemas. And then uncut on blu-ray. The stuff they cut out wasn't bad enough. To warrant actually chopping the movie down and fucking changing the certs all together it's just going to show again how flawed these fucking things are their whole idea is all the violence lingers a lot it's like so what if it lingers it's meant to they're fucking bad people he's killing what do you fucking expect now the one thing that actually had me on board with this was joe carnahan wrote the screenplay it's still based on brian garfield's novel but joe carnahan wrote it and he wrote like some narc of the guy. i fucking love his work I would much prefer if he directed this to be honest but alright Eli Roth he gets a bad rep in a way alright I I really enjoy Hostel Cabin Fever has his moments he's done a lot of terrible terrible stuff undeniably but he himself he is just so knowledgeable about all things horror that I still find him somewhat endearing and I'm kind of interested to see what he'll do next because I always have a bit of hope that he'll do a real masterpiece someday I mean, probably so far hostiles as Masterpiece. Because he changed fucking horror movies entirely in the mid-2000s. And pretty much invented the torture porn genre along with Saw. But, I don't know. I have a a lot of respect for the guy. I don't like that they call him a horror master, though. Because he knows his horror. Absolutely, I trust his opinion on it. But when when you say horror master, you think of John Carpenter. Wes Craven and shit like that. You don't think of... Eli Roth the guy who's done a lot of passable shit but I'm digressing here anyway so he decided he was going to take this on and with Bruce Willis and Lee Roth I thought oh fuck he's not going to play Paul Kersey properly because Charles Bronson alright Charles Bronson I mentioned before last week along with the likes of Lee Marvin and Clint Eastwood and shit like that is just one of those people you look at and go I never want to mess with that person they would just fuck you up he's just one of these tough as nails L lads take no shit types but in Death Wish, because he's playing a pacifist at the beginning, he just seems believable as a an in-shape, well-to-do, nice owl lad Whereas he seems, with Bruce Willis, Bruce Willis is constantly putting on tough guy face. He looks like he just ate a fucking lemon. He always looks like he's trying to look tough and like, oh, nothing means it to me, I can fuck anyone up. He has that look about him, even though he's meant to be playing, now instead of an architect, he's a trauma surgeon and i think they, that is an interesting way to write in some of the stuff he might do because like i said mentioning remakes before you want to have enough of the original project there to get people interested but you want to make it different enough that it just doesn't seem like a copy and paste job this does a good job of that i will say it's set in chicago this time which is funnily enough where the first one ends and his wife, instead of having it where... Like, like I mentioned in the first film, Jeff Goldblum and his mates are hanging around the supermarket when they follow... But basically, what they do then is, OK, you buy all your shit, we'll deliver this to your apartment. They see the address that's going to get delivered, and then they follow them there. In this movie, the guys who break into the house... It's, it's a different atmosphere. I don't actually think there's rape in this movie. I think it's just murder. Um, what a weird sentence. But they... They work as valet types, and what they do is when they get in the car, they search the address on the g p s and okay, they live there. it's probably well off. We'll go rob the gaff and when they get there, Bruce Willis's wife, who I think Elizabeth Shue plays her, and his daughter is played by Camilla Marone. The two of them are back at home, and these lads break in trying to rob the place and I think it ends up with them being killed. I can't remember if both of them, I'm pretty sure I know the daughter does, and he tries to like save her because he's a surgeon. And it's just, it's a fucking, it's a mess really, just the the whole situation. It just feels less impactful. Once it gets to the actual revenge and story, because what happens is there's a weird side story as well. His brother is played by Vincent D'Onofrio. And he's like, he's like recovering drug addict or something like that. And he needs money and there's all this kind of stuff, him getting involved with gangs. And that's just another side story for Paul Carsey to go off and fucking deal with. And I think the cop who's trying to track him down on this is played by Dean Norris, who you'd obviously know from Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, the better on TV, and if you don't like it, you're an idiot. And with this, it feels tacked on. It doesn't feel like it actually needs to be in the story. It's it's like an excuse to just go, we need more kills. But this one goes a different way. He throws a hood on, and he goes around, and he just shoots some random drug dealers at one point. And because the modern day social media... The way all that kind of works and the way people are idolised. He gets caught on camera doing it. They don't see his face. But it's all about him now becoming this star. Everyone hears about him like, oh, the guy, the vigilante guy. This again sets off another chain of events, all that kind of shit. It feels schlocky how it's stuck together. It doesn't feel like it, it blends as well. The realism is already out the window, especially with some of the kills. One of the kills is actually great, but it's like something from Saw. I think he has a guy who's like a mechanic, one of the guys who robbed him, or who killed his family, I should say, more than robbed him. Well, robbed him of his family. He goes in and I think he jacks up a car underneath him, or he jacks up a car above him, and does a surgical slash on his leg and like fills it with chemicals and all this over-the-top shit. But he basically gets the info he needs and kicks the jack out, and the car lands on the guy's head. (laughs) And I was quite impressed with this because this could have been a movie where It cuts away. Or they just had some CGI. They went out of their way. To do a serious. Big prosthetic. Upper body. To have explode. And I thought. You know what. That's. That's the kind of stuff. I expect from Eli Roth. I expect him to put real effort. Into gore and horror. And throw those elements. Into a crime movie. There's some good. Um. Chekhov gun. Kind of. MacGuffin. Not MacGuffin. Uh. Shit. What's the word? Plot. Placement. No. I, I can't think of the word. But uh. Foreshadowing—that's the word. He uh, he sees an advert on TV for these like it's one of these ultra gun channels or like one of these channels are like oh we're showing you the, the new AK forty-seven whatever the fuck, and it's this protect your home like damn blazier and that kind of gun. He fucking has all these hidden guns all around his house and stuff like that, and they show him that and how he can hide it above his bed and under his his coffee table and all these like special places to hide weapons, and. That comes into the film later on I think it's one of the last guys he kills See none of the villains Are actually memorable in this All the villains in the other movies are You recognise who they are And you're like Okay I know Who I'm looking at here And who the villain is Except the first one Because the first one decided to go The typical Bitter Ugly 70s downbeat role And go We're not going to let this guy Get any fucking revenge on these people Just other villains These guys get away free With this I don't even remember Who any of the villains are They're so unmemorable There's a few good scenes of him Finding them and taking them out there's one i think he goes into like a pawn shop or something and something to do with like a security camera i can't remember there's some good shootouts i just know it's a bit messy in my head because like i said i haven't seen it in two years but i wanted to just include it in this little death wish review spotlight episode but he takes these people out and at the end he gets to use that kind of hidden compartment under his table for the gun i thought that was very well foreshadowed and well written The film itself, I think, because I went in with such low expectations. Now, obviously, Joe Carnahan was a big, would have pushed me a bit more. But seeing Bruce Willis, seeing Eli Roth, I was like, I really don't fucking think this is going to work. And just, I remember the trailer looked lame. And it ended up not being bad. It's actually not a bad film. It's not great. It's a solid, middle-of-the-road, bare-bones, entertaining, fairly bloody action movie. But it doesn't do much for it. It ends in a similar way as well. It tries to do that thing. All right? Now, Charles Bronson has the kind of... First of all, the charm to do it. But it's almost like he's just pointing at them and winking. But you know that he means he's pretending to fire a gun. That's at the end of the first movie. In this movie, Bruce Willis tries to do the same thing. And it's so shit. He basically actually has the full action of a gun in his hand. Pretending to shoot these guys. And it's so lame looking. And really poorly done. I'm pretty sure Dean Norris finds him in this as well, much like the guy in the first. And says, "Look, you have to fuck off, but I'm not gonna arrest you." It's it's that same kind of attitude, but it's it's ultimately very forgettable. I wouldn't I wouldn't say not to watch it if it's cut. Don't watch it because just don't ever give in to watching anything that's cut anyway. No world deserves that. But I think it's different enough that you don't need to have been involved in the original films at all but it's close enough that you'd rather have seen the first one first and go, okay, now I know what's better. Overall, as a collection, excluding the remake, it's a solid, very entertaining group of action films that change dramatically from film to film. And I think there's a lot of quality in there. Even at its worst, it still has its moments. If you include the remake, it's just, eh, there's a fucking remake drawn on the end, it doesn't really do much. You can see the fucking Turkish Shalau or Selat one Whatever it's called And Sex wish If you wish But You don't need them I think If you want to just have a decent Entertaining If Downbeat Fucking Couple of Hours Or a couple of nights I suppose ben, What way you spread these out I was mad enough to just do it all I think I did the first two In one night And then the The three, four, five Were done the next night So Yeah It's doable <laughs> If you decide you want to give yourself twenty four hours of Charles Bronson, mostly sleepwalking his way through the movies, because I didn't really get into, I suppose, acting in these. I mean, like, the first film he's trying one hundred percent. Second film, as I said, he throws on a weird accent. Third film, I don't even know if he knows he made that film. Fourth film is where he tries again, though. That's why I like the fourth one a lot. It's it. It's a really. It feels like a return to form, really, and in the fifth film. He, he actually seems too much of a sweet old man to, to get away with half the kills he does because he's really just nice and friendly but when he's killing people it's just this is just a 70 year old old lad standing there with a gun and he, he doesn't he's not as imposing as he was in the other movies because Charles Bonson like I said he used to be fucking built to shit so you wouldn't fuck with him but yeah I think that's uh, an example I mean that was a lot of movies to cover <laughs> in a spotlight episode and how long have I gone uh, not too long actually. An hour, nearly an hour, twenty minutes. I'm surprised I managed to do six movies in detail, well, reasonable detail, like that. Uh, I think if I'm gonna do any other spotlight episodes, it probably will be with someone because I, I was discussing with some people that one of them wants to do Fanatic, the John Travolta movie, which isn't as bad as people say. And I'd like to sit down and really hash the movie out because I'm I'm more just given a a rundown of these movies. But if I was to really get in deep with someone and talk. About a movie or a series of movies. I think that could uh could go on a bit longer than this one. But uh, like I said. I want to try to be a bit shorter now for a while. Because I've, I've indulged in uh, ultra long episodes. For a good while now. So you can enjoy a reasonably shorter episode. But if you enjoyed this. Thanks a lot. And thanks for listening as always. If you do. um, I'm happy that I got to talk about these movies. In a slightly different way. And actually get into details. Because I wanted to talk mostly about. Movie to movie, how they've changed. Because I mean, I mean, when you know the sequels to a movie, it can kind of hurt your experience tension-wise. If you ever see a character that's in peril, you're like, "Well, I know he's in two, three, and four, so it's not really, it's not real peril for four movies, at least." So it can be a bit disappointing to go back and see them. But with this one, even just describing the movies, I feel like I would have been giving stuff away anyway. So the only way to really get into it is talk about in detail. How horrendous Paul Cursey's life is. <laughs> he's killed well over 100 people. Everyone he's ever loved has died or been taken away from him in some way. And he just keeps going. I wonder I wonder where he fucking ended up after all of this. He's gotten away with so many crimes. With so many understanding police officers. Who are just like, oh well, he's a vigilante. Let him fucking do what he needs to do. And I think in in some level there is that. I think it's... I'd say if there was a genuine vigilante going around killing people, more so in America now, the cops would probably be like, well, sure he's a bad guy, but he just took out all these gang members we've been trying to get fucking sanctions on for years and we couldn't, so... I'd say there's a, a lot of love for vigilantes somewhere within the police forces, but obviously they have to be seen to not liking them and wanting to prevent them and whatever else. But yeah, if you enjoyed this, please let me know. I definitely enjoy talking about it and getting to talk about the different aspects pretty fucking grim movies to (laughs) to choose for a spotlight episode because i talked about fucking graphic rape for a solid 20 minutes of this show but at least you know i suppose contextually why it was there and why michael winner is a scumbag and why it feels good to watch revenge happen to really bad people in movies it's always very very entertaining and fun um so yeah thanks a lot for listening there will be more spotlight episodes in the future. The next episode that's coming though. Is going to just be a regular one. And I'm considering some lists soon. I do have uh, I have about 40 or so movies. In a list that I made. For not necessarily ones that didn't quite make the top 100. But well, this is out of the decade now. But just 40 overlooked movies. Movies that people didn't give nearly enough credit to. Some of them could have made the top 100. Some are, like just decent alright movies. But it's more that they're not getting enough attention. And I think they should. So I will make a a list for those soon. I just don't know how soon. But stay tuned for a new episode anyway. That should be maybe out somewhere between Friday and Sunday. Could be out Monday morning. I'll see. Uh, just want to get around to it. Obviously I have plenty of free time with all this fucking coronavirus isolation shit that's going on. But I want to spend that time doing other shit. So a new episode will come out. I'll explain the, the interesting Developments in the movie world that have taken place over the last few days because of this outbreak and the amount of films that have been postponed and stuff that will be appearing online uh, which I'm going to hopefully get because I think there there are some movies that are coming out this Friday that are currently in cinema online for 20 quid a piece and that's dollars too so it could be a bit cheaper here so I'm going to watch them and then I will review them probably over the weekend and that will be my way of talking about these new movies that are getting released so Until next time, thank you all for listening, you're all cunts, goodbye.